0: Hello, everyone. You're now listening to Researchers Digest, a radio show to keep us updated with the current research in science and engineering, with an emphasis in physics and uh, engineering, of course. I'm your host, Yagnesh. I'm your co-host, Jim. Hello. Hello. It's been a while since uh, I've actually taken up the mic. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's it's uh, feels very nostalgia coming back <laughs> in here after a long time. Uh, uh, Jim's been taking the show and he's been doing an amazing job. Thank so you. Listened. Yeah, Yeah. we
1: have Mitchell on board, now three of us. Yeah, now three of us doing the show. It's really good. We'll be rotating every week. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So next week you'll have uh, Mitch, and then the week after, I'll be back. So it's great. So, as uh, always, we will start with an acknowledgement of country and we will head into the topics.
1: Who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Waroni is created? We pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We acknowledge that the name Moroni was taken from the Wadi Wadi Nation without permission, and we are striving to do better for future reconciliation.
0: All righty, so today we'll be covering uh, hopefully two topics in engineering, Uh, one regarding a robotic exploration, and uh, the next regarding AI and medicine, Ah. which is going to be pretty interesting. (laughs) And uh, from Jim's side, uh, I believe you're going to be recapping on uh, last week's topic.
1: Yeah, so last week, um, Michelle and I, we talked about this new um, room temperature superconductor that was being d- discovered called wow. LK99. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've heard of that.
0: No, I haven't heard about that. Um, I did briefly go through your topic uh, last week and um, understood a bit, but uh, <laughs> I'll let you kind of recap on that. Yeah, just a
1: quick recap. A superconductor is basically, as the name implies, a conductor below which, at a critical temperature, there will be no electrical resistance. Yep. Yeah, that's, you know that? Yes. And that room temperature te- room temperature superconductor basically means that it works at room temperature. That's
0: amazing, because I remember that um usually for superconductors, you have to cool them quite to yeah, a low usually temperature. Yeah, below like
1: 100 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Minus 100 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what... Our topic last week, where we discussed about this LK ninety nine material, hmm. uh, it actually works in in the boiling water temperature, like above one hundred degrees, degrees Celsius. Wow, that's amazing! Really insane. It is
0: insane. Um, and I was this uh, an artificial uh, material that was generated uh, in a lab, or is this something like an uh, alloy of two natural materials combined together in the lab? It's a lab, so they synthesize this material. Yeah,
1: yeah. Wow. And it was actually quite simple. So a lot of labs in the world have been trying to recreate and test this material. Yeah. And today I'm just going to do some update regarding how it's going. Amazing. And uh, you would guess, it failed.
0: It failed. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be an interesting uh, interesting, um, talk indeed.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. You know I mean? It was hyped up so much. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, because it, um, it, like, even when you mentioned it, I thought that, wow, this is defying my understanding of physics behind this area. Because in my understanding, in order to, like, because effectively you want to slow the movements and make the electrons much closer to each other to actually improve the conductivity, right? Yeah. So that's why you cool them. But then if you can do it in room temperature, it kind of defies that, like, logic, in my opinion. I just didn't understand how that would work. So it be pretty, pretty interesting to, to see why it was debunked. Yeah. Um,
1: okay um for a quick recap on how superconductivity works um but it needs to be cooled at a really low temperature to prevent the random jiggling of molecules that's what heat is and under superconductivity an electron will propagate through the material but like it creates a wave Hmm. and that wave propagates through the material that's what superconductivity is, but with some quantum effects. Yeah. But then, yes, if you have certain materials combined, you might have special properties such that mm. it might be able to propagate through the material even when there's a lot of noise and jiggling inside the material.
0: Yeah, that seems very. Um, I don't know. I, I can't get a physical intuition for that <laughs> at the at the moment because they are, those those waves when they when the particles are like. Not moving as much, it makes sense for waves to pass through, yeah, like comfortably. Yeah. But then, yeah, when they're moving, it's gonna. It, I'm pretty sure it causes it's, it's a notification.
1: Like trying to mm. find, it's propagate a small ripple inside a wave of oceans. Exactly. Yeah. You
0: wouldn't really see the ripple, right? The ripple will be distro- distorted quite a lot. Yeah, that's so the idea. Why,
1: why? That's why it's so hard.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, I so should we start with your topics? Did you you have one more topic to cover today? I
1: believe. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I'm just fo- keep following on for for this experiment. Yeah. So how so a lot of labs around the world try to recreate the method, and they have failed to to see that the material is actually superconduct. In <laughs> fact, it's not even a superconductor. It's a really poor conductor. It's a resistor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, shocking. Wow. Is it because they did some steps wrong, or did they get something like? Probably not the same. Did they use the same techniques or did they change something?
1: Not sure. The original author has yet to respond. Ah.
0: Ah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nah. How long ago was um,
1: this exactly? Uh, um, this, this paper? Just, just a few days ago.
0: Uh, okay. So this, this conversation has been happening just a few days ago. Yeah. So, okay. Maybe maybe we'll see what he has to say. We might need to do another third update next week Thank regarding you. this. Yeah. Depending on how the, the original author. paper wasn't
1: peer-reviewed. Ah. So... Yeah, maybe there were a lot of mm. like mistakes. They the authors fail to notice. I mean, if they
0: got the entire superconducting thing wrong, that's <laughs> 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 it's not a mistake. That is uh, small <laughs> by any means. And and for yeah. those who don't understand about the logic behind papers, without peer review, you can't really um, prove whether a paper is accurate or not. The more peer reviews it gets, the more you can trust in a paper. So if a paper has zero peer reviews, generally speaking, it's it's not a very reliable body of text yeah. at the moment. Yeah,
1: That's why as soon as it was released in pre, pre-print, there'll be a lot of people trying to peer-review that. Yeah. So the experiment failed, but also there are some theoretical um, scientists trying to explain what they were actually measuring. Yeah, right. So one special property of superconductor is that below a critical temperature, you also release some sort of magnetic field. Hmm. And this magnetic field can cause the material to levitate.
0: Ah, yes, I remember. There's magnetic levitation. That's how you you get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: the original of the day had this levitation, and then some theoretical physicists, um, they argue that it's not really superconductor. It's more of a ferromagnetic property. Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) So it's just magnetic repulsion, effectively. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Man, that's that's a very controversial um, uh, body of text, I'd say, considering that other researchers haven't been able to replicate it, and also there's a lot of open-ended questions still um, needing to be answered. It's yeah, so yeah. most
1: likely it's it's, it's it's not gonna work. It's, yeah, wow. Yeah. So.
0: Isn't that amazing? Like like these people publish papers even in this day and age when it's easy to disprove something, <laughs> for just. I don't know some sort of fame, I guess, <laughs> just to get their name out in the in the world. It's it's crazy. Well,
1: mm-hmm. that's what science is—you find something and then it shows that it works. But then, it <laughs> <does it. laughs>
0: but in this case, it's like flagrantly they lie. <laughs> if it doesn't work, then it's, it's clearly like come on. Wow. Who will
1: ever know whether they <laughs> lied or not? Maybe. Yeah, fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> it it is funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, when well, looking back, it is funny as like they people like, studying this material has quoted. It's actually a very highly resistive core quality material. The lower the temperature you go, the worse it is at conducting. <laughs> 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 Unbelievable! <laughs> it's just this result is really funny. Yeah, that they claim to be a room temperature superconductor.
0: I think they probably got the term superconductor mixed up there. (laughs) 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 They're going for super uh, resistor. (laughs) 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 Wow. It's it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's a short update on the previous topic. Brilliant.
0: Cool. So, are you ready to move on to uh, probably an engineering topic? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I have an interesting uh, topic about um, lunar exploration. Currently, it's been picking up a lot of speed, um, lunar exploration, so going on to the moon and uh, performing some experiments and getting some samples.
1: Yeah, um, yeah they're trying to go to Mars as the next step. So yeah, and
0: and one of the key stages um, between here and Mars is having a lunar um, launch base or lunar habitat ah, because yeah. um, it'll actually make those missions much more feasible compared to launching it from Earth. Yeah, so, I thought of it yeah. because
1: Moon has much lower gravity, so it's exactly. much easier to launch. Exactly. Yeah, you don't
0: have to spend that much energy expelling. Like because in order to get out of the Earth's atmosphere. We need to put around. Uh, we need to fly around eleven kilometers per second squared of acceleration. It's like sorry, eleven kilometers per second speed. You have to travel to actually escape the Earth, uh, yeah. or around nine kilometers per second, actually. Yeah. Uh, to be very accurate, yeah, nine kilometers per second speed. You have to accelerate to actually get out of the Earth's um, orbit itself. So it's it's pretty fast. It's a lot of energy uh, that it takes to do that. So launching from the moon would be much more easier. So in order to actually establish a base there, we need to do some exploration. Um, more than what we've done. So there's a lot of missions being planned. And one team, uh, a bunch of engineers at ETH Zurich, uh, are now training legged robots for future lunar missions uh, to search for new minerals and raw material and also to just map out the terrain. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, Is that different from some of the Mars rovers we have?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So regarding the Mars rovers, um, if you notice, they're all wheeled. They have wheels on them. Yes. Yeah. Or you have aerial drones which are orbiting the sky and they take images and samples. But if you orbit the planet, suppose you can only take visual pictures and probably do spectrometric analysis. But you won't really be able to do too much analysis on, say, the um, the composition of the rocks or what are the minerals present? Or you, you can't really dig into the ground and identify any minerals present in that location. It's very difficult to do that. Yeah, that's why we have rovers. That's why we have rovers. But even rovers with those wheeled um, rovers, like Curiosity, um, they have limitations in where they can go and what terrains they can um, navigate through. Because if you notice leg robots, it, 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 we have legs, right? We don't roll everywhere. Is It's easier to climb up a mountain, Right. with your legs, or easier to go down a a crater or a hole. If there's, like, a pit, it's easier to climb down and climb out using legs and limbs. Whereas if you imagine doing that with a a wheel, (laughs) it's very difficult to get out of those uh, holes. So so there are certain regions which are inaccessible with rovers uh, because they're wheeled. So using legged robots can actually enhance this uh, capability. So you can actually go into these kind of spaces. So that's their motivation. Now, they also... Uh, seem to ensure that the robots can continue to work even if one of them malfunctions if you have a team of robots being deployed in that location. So they're trying to make three or two or three different robots collaborate together to do exploration. And they seem to think that that's the next level of exploration because currently we have an independent rover doing its own thing and then sending data back and forth, right? We don't have a team of robots working together.
1: Okay, what sort of teamwork would you expect?
0: Yeah, so that's what we're gonna discuss in this uh, research topic. It's a very interesting approach. So these researchers have equipped um, three animal. Uh, so it's kind of a- animal. <laughs> uh, it's it's a robot that's devi- devised by um, uh, MIT. It's an MIT robot. Yeah, uh, it's a four-legged quadruped uh, robot. Um, you should touch it up. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, It's one of the most advanced quadrupeds we have um, to date uh, being designed. And uh, it's a type of uh, legged robot. Uh, Oh, sorry, it was developed at ETH. Sorry, my bad. Not MIT, it was ETH. Um, And now uh, Animal actually has a range of... uh, So it's a very dynamic quadruped, very popular and very um, versatile. They've equipped it with uh, a bunch of measuring and analysis instruments that would potentially make them suitable for exploration devices. So something like Curiosity, right? It's embedded with a bunch of measuring tools. Yeah. So they did the same thing with Animal because it can actually take up a large amount of load. So they've loaded it up with a bunch of measuring equipment.
1: Okay, by Animal is the robot, not... not it's not control. an Animal, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's the robot's name. It's a funny yeah. name. That's why I said it's like Anymal. It's, it's like A-N-Y-M-A-L, not A-N-I-M-A-L. So it's a bit of a funny name. Uh, It's a bit of a wordplay. Yeah, so what um, they've done with these, uh, they tested these robots on various terrains in Switzerland. (sighs) Lovely place. Um, And the European Space uh, Resources Innovation Center uh, in Luxembourg. So you know that for Mars missions and uh, moon missions, they actually choose very specific locations on Earth uh, where you can go and test the same conditions. Ah. Like like terrain conditions. Of course, not the same atmospheric conditions, yeah, but the seen same terrain. Some pictures
1: where they take a piece of Mars and a piece of Australian desert. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. You can simulate the same conditions yeah, yeah. On, on Earth in those locations. So they did the same kind of thing where they went to the various trains in Switzerland and uh, the European um, uh, Space Resources Innovation Center. And they conducted a bunch of tests. Uh, now, this team the Swiss team actually won the European competition for lunar exploration uh, robots. Oh. Yeah, so that's like a competition which occurs between other countries where they each one presents their own ideas, and they kind of identify who's the best at performing these navigation functions or these um, analysis functions, and they have these competitions between different robots, and these guys won the competition, so... That's where they wow. were like, cool, you should get out of paper because <laughs> we actually yeah, did, definitely. Did, did this. Um, we succeeded with this idea. So, the competition involved finding and identifying minerals on a test site, which was modeled after the surface of the moon. Right? Mm. So, how they actually conducted this test is what their paper was about, uh, which they published in the Journal of Science Robotics. So, the first principle that they were covering is insurance against failure. Now, If you just have, say, a single Curiosity rover being dumped into an environment like the moon. Now, if, suppose, some engineer messed up and there was a little (laughs) glitch with the operation, then the entire robot would fail and you won't have any other means of getting the data. So all the the money that you poured into the mission (laughs) is gone (laughs) because of just one robot or one small, small glitch, right? Yeah. You don't really have tolerances for those errors. So suppose if it's not a critical mission failure kind of component, if it's just like the mass spec, so a mass spectrometer to analyze certain rock samples, malfunctions, you won't be able to perform that feature at all, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why this team actually used multiple robots and collaborated them together. So use of multiple robots can actually mitigate this um, level of failure which occurs just due to one, uh, say element of a robot failing. And that's what they said as insurance against the failure.
1: Um, Are those multiple robots, they do different things or they are the same robot but they have multiple copies of them?
0: That's a good question. Yeah. So what they've made is the individual robots can take on very specialized tasks. So you can have like three different robots. That's what they did. They had three different robots and all of the three had very specialized tasks that they had to do. But they also had redundancy. So they added certain, um, say, features to all of the robots which were common between them. So thereby, what they were able to do is in in a case where one robot fails, the other robot will be able to take up its operation. Oh. But there were only certain elements. So they tried to balance out the redundancy with the special uh, specialization. So it's a balancing act that they did.
1: Oh, okay, okay. So
0: certain elements were redundant, so all the robots had them. But certain elements were very specialized for each robot. There, thereby, you can actually decentralize the work. So each robot can do its own thing. But in a case where one robot fails in a very specific important task, another robot can pick up its slack.
1: Mm, that's very clever.
0: Yeah, it was a very interesting thing. It might seem very intuitive, but it's actually very difficult trying to make robots collaborate. Um, I personally work uh, in robotic collaboration uh, at um, UC. And like, we deal with this like complication where it's very hard to make a robot talk to another robot. It may seem very easy in concept, but in in generality, trying to make them function together is very different because we as humans have a way of communicating which is very intuitive, but robots don't have that intuition. You have to hard-code all of that in. So it's very difficult trying to make robots collaborate, especially in these complex mission environments. So that's why it was a very unique um, implementation done by this
1: team. So how do they make them communicate?
0: So, effectively, um, the exact mechanism behind uh, the communication is quite deep. You need to actually understand robotic communication, and it's a, it's a huge topic behind what type of protocols you'd use and everything. But the a very um, kind of not too much detail-oriented explanation would be identifying certain areas where they can um, effectively transfer data between each other. Yeah. So... It's kind of integrating them in an environment where they can relay data between each other and they can perform logical checks on the data. So if suppose data is not incoming from a very specific function from one of the robots, it'll identify that as a failure. And then then you have to add a control algorithm in the background, which takes over this feature. So you'd have to replan I mean, most likely those kind of operations will be done from a ground base. So you'll just receive information being like, oh, this robot failed. And then you would control and add another set of algorithms to the other robot. But in the environment themselves, they'd just be relating data between each other. So you'd have this kind of data transfer between all of them. Ooh. And they will work out, okay, this thing has failed. I need to go pick up Slack from here. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's a combination to to of ground-based me. control and just in uh, in
1: situ communication between the robots if they want to put it in, onto the moon then that yeah the task. yeah
0: but thankfully since the moon is not very far away you can also do some ground-based control quite quickly it doesn't take that long for the data to come back and forth between the moon and earth yeah, yeah.
1: but if it wasn't mars, mars it's a different is, it's case it'll take four like, minutes or yeah i think yeah something like
0: that so it's, it's a long time <laughs> so yeah Now, the researchers at ETH Zurich and a bunch of other universities um, at Basel, Bern, and Zurich uh, solved this problem by equipping two legged robots as specialists. So, remember, we said they were like, there are three robots that they worked with. So, two of the robots were two legged, uh, sorry, two of the robots were legged robots,
1: right? Um, Yes.
0: One robot was programmed to be particularly good at mapping the terrain and classifying the geology. Uh, So, it used a laser scanner and several cameras to be able to do that. And this robot's function was just to gather the mineral composition of the rocks. So that was its specialized feature. Yeah, why is it a geologist? <laughs> yeah, a robotic geologist. And the other robot's speciality was to identify rocks using a Raman spectrometer and a microscopy camera. So they, these are two different tools. But if you notice, they're doing the same task. They're yes, identifying the rock composition. Yes. So this is where we have that redundancy but at the same time specialized features because the Raman spectrometry is gonna show you a bit more different layers of data and compared to the spectral analysis performed by laser scanner. But together, they have they form a bigger database, but if suppose one of these ob- uh, devices fail, you still have the other one, which is doing analysis anyway. So you still get some data, it, yeah. yeah. It's not like you get no, no data, you still get good data. Yeah. It's just that if both are working, you just get an enormous amount of data, which is really good to work with, which you can characterize more information out of it. But the loss of some information does not mean loss of all information, which is what we're we're focusing on over here. Yeah,
1: even though it's redundant, you're you're not actually wasting any resources. Exactly,
0: yeah, which is a very intelligent way of doing it. Now, the third robot, you must be wondering, it was a generalist robot. So it's not necessarily legged. It could be aerial. It could be... um, any, any kind of it could be wheeled but this generalist um robot it had to map the ter- uh, map the terrain and identify rocks again it was doing the same features but it had a broader range of tasks than the specialist ones so it was moreover like an overarching kind of viewpoint rather than individual specialist viewpoints a super robot a super robot <laughs> sure <laughs> So its equipment, man. Uh, so this particular um, robot, the third robot, it didn't have very sophisticated equipment like a Raman spectrometry or a laser um, scanner. It just had very generalist equipment, so it couldn't really perform high precision tasks. But um, this thing made it possible to complete the mission should any of the other robots malfunction. So you have this very advanced robot which does really high quality sensing. You have another robot which does a similar layer of level of sensing. But not as good, and then you have a third robot which doesn't do as good as the both, but it still relays data. So you always are getting some sort of data from all these three robots from different mean, yeah. means.
1: What about the cost of building three different robot compared to having the property of all three robots going into one? That's
0: a good question. Now, I the paper doesn't really address cost, which is uh, a <laughs> which you might find funny, but um, in regards to space research, cost is usually not an object. Oh, it, oh, really? it's, it's very like. <laughs> It's, it is, it is, um, it is uh, a key factor, but usually they have a lot of money to blow their budget on. So three robots versus one robot, especially when you're considering like animal uh, as a robot, it really doesn't impact it too much in wow, a sense. Okay. It's not a huge um, kind of complication. In, in terms of industry a lot of money. It has a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> they do have, a, especially if you compare ESA and um, NASA, they have crazy amount of money. They should, should see their budget. I mean, the the James Webb telescope, it was like a couple of billion dollars. I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. And they still have budget to launch other missions now, They're launching new missions even of like next year. So, so they have a lot of money. <laughs> so three robots really doesn't um, add too much of a complication because if you consider the fact that if one of those robots failed, you still have other robots functioning in the field, which gives you valued data, right? So, if suppose you just launch one robot and it failed, that's a that's just money down the drain. That's it, kaput. Whereas if you launch three robots, you at least have something to show for it.
1: it seems with infinite money, you can just put, build three of the same robot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, in a sense, it's really not very too much of a too much of a hassle. <laughs> so yeah, no, this um this particular way uh, of integrating these three robots, uh, as they mentioned, combination was the key to their success. Actually, it was very impressive. And um, many other spatial organizations uh, took this idea and they actually um, kind of are thinking of implementing it in the future mission. And um, yeah, ETH Zero basically won that competition thanks to this uh, unique combination of robots, specifically um, the legged robots, because the legged robots actually enable them to go through multiple different terrains compared to other robots. So they could actually survey more area or more different type of um, land uh, landscapes, and therefore they could get more useful data by using those robots. I mean, it may, may, may seem very intuitive. Like, oh, you could just throw a legged robot, yeah, right? But you have to make it mission-specific because it has to be able to sustain the conditions, right? It's not just about throwing any legged robot. You have to make sure that that robot can withstand the environmental conditions, the weight restrictions, etc. Yeah. So it was a lot of, like, they had to do some tweaking. But through that, they were really able to um, shine. So it's uh, it's very interesting. In the future, they are even thinking of adding some flying robots, like drones um, to actually complement these um, these these other um, robots and hopefully provide like a broad view. So it can provide like an aerial view being like, okay, you can go this direction. it'll be like a mission coordinator. So it'll be like targeting, okay, this, this particular location has a bit of a hazard, so move to the other location. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this kind of collaborative robotic um, exploration is what they're thinking of. It's for heading fiction.
1: towards sci-fi.
0: It's heading towards sci-fi, <laughs> indeed. So yeah, that was the topic. Hope you found that uh, interesting yeah, in terms interesting. of collaborative robotics. So we'll take a short break, and we will get into your physics topic
1: for the day. Yep.
0: All right, we're back
1: Welcome back <laughs> for this next topic, we have, have a new proof which finds that uh, there's an ultimate instability in a solar system model.
0: Damn!
1: This <laughs> is uh, more of a massive topic, like, mm. as the name suggests, a proof. And uh, we know how much you like mass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't even get me started, buddy. <laughs> 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 I mean, I like math. I just don't like mathematicians. It's, it's, it's a very specific niche. Anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. <laughs> so, some background. Yeah. Back in 2009, a pair of astronomers at the Paris Observatory announced a discovery. Mm. After building a detailed computational <laughs> model of our solar system, they run thousands of numerical simulations, projecting the motions of the planets billions of years into the future. And most of the simulations, they vary the starting point of Mercury's orbit by just over, like, around one meter.
0: So one meter in its orbit, like it no, just moves?
1: starting position.
0: Oh, okay, okay, so...
1: Just like, they tr- they out for each simulation. And, okay. and everything, most of the time, they p- everything proceeded as expected. The planets continue to orbit around the sun and all of that. Hmm. But around 1% of the time, things went sideways. (laughs) 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 uh, Define side. Oh, (laughs) wow. Okay. Okay. Interesting. The shape of Mercury's orbit changed significantly. Wow. Its elliptical trajectory gradually flattened and until the planet either plummeted into the sun or collided with Venus. Damn. Wow. Sometimes as it casts... Like its new path through space, its behavior destabilized other planets as well. For example, so it causes like a ripple effect. To yeah, the Mars might be ejected from the solar system, <laughs> <Earth. laughs> or it might crash into us, Venus, and uh-huh. Venus and Earth could, in a small slow cosmic dance, can exchange orbit several times before eventually colliding. Yikes!
0: Wow, it's um, it's it's, <laughs> and you said it's not even that much of a variation. It's like. One meter. Just one meter very. condition. That is like, okay, so is this like a planetary theory where um, planets do tend to deviate from their natural orbit every, say, millennia or something like that? Is, is that like a common thing that happens in the solar
1: system? Actually, we don't really know. So That's why they do the simulation, trying to find out whether all s- solar systems are stable. Right.
0: Because eventually yeah. we are going to kind of be pulled into
1: the sun. At well, some eventually, point, right? the yeah. sun is going to burn itself out and then expand yeah. and then and then eats the inner planets. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, so don't need to worry about that. <laughs> it's, it's 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 in a very long, you know, billions of years away kind of uh range, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So so
1: yeah, we're good for so now. They change the starting condition by one meter. Just think of it like i like one meter, like that's not much. Sh- like the size of the Earth is like ten thousand kilometers across. Like, yeah, like it's something crazy. It's like eighteen, 18 Yeah, and then yeah. our sh- our orbit radius is I think what, hundred and fifty million kilometers away from the sun. Wouldn't know.
0: <laughs> you're, you're you're the astrophysics guy. <laughs>
1: yeah, just changing that by one meter, and then you can see Venus getting ejected <laughs> system, which is quite funny to think about. Wow, but that's around one percent of the chance of that happening.
0: Right. Oh, okay. When you think about it, one percent is not much. It might be a, a a model error as well, like because it's all just based on just math, right? Like so. Yeah, but this is the could in- just be a statistic. interesting thing
1: about instability. Yeah. This is like a property of it, you might say, mm. which is that if you change the starting conditions slightly, it may lead to drastic. Changes in its future environment.
0: Now, what are the probable reasons for such instability to be kind of caused in such models?
1: um Have you heard of the three-body problem?
0: The three-body problem, like in a pendulum, three-body, or um, I, I, I don't think I have. To be honest, I, I,
1: I, I, I think I'm, I know where you're coming from about the pendulum. Yeah. One example of the three-body pendulum. Yeah. Uh, you attach a pendulum on top of another pendulum. And on top of another pendulum, yeah. yeah you can never predict what's gonna do. Yeah, but chaos, chaos, like yeah, chaotic movements. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's the same. Right. Okay. Yep. It's the same behavior. So in a s- numerical simulation, um, you essentially start with the starting condition, which is the position and the velocity of every object. Mm. Say, for example, you have three different bodies the moon, the earth and the sun. They are placed at a certain distance apart on the plane. Yep. Now if you want to run a simulation of that, you want to input its parameters such as its gravitational attraction. Mm-hmm. And then run and do a and then run start the timer. Yep, okay and then you can take small time steps su- such as one second or one year, depending on the system you're trying to model. So let's say for example we do one second. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, after the first second, the moon moves as a result of the gravity of the Earth and the sun. <laughs> like, and yeah. well, I well assume the Earth and the sun being stationary. Yeah. Okay. In the next second, the Earth moves as a result of gravity from the moon and the sun, while the other two stay stationary. Right. And the third okay. second, the sun moves while the Earth and the moon stay stationary. <laughs>
0: that's pretty uh, impossible, right? <laughs> like compared to the uh Of the, course, the gravitational. Yeah. It's not real, yeah. <laughs> but
1: that's the problem with. Trying to simulate more than two bodies at once. Yeah, it's,
0: it's more of the computational intensity is very difficult to process, right?
1: Yeah, mm, if you want yeah. to for a more accurate um, model, you want to decrease the time step mm. as small as possible.
0: Yeah, but then that doesn't really give you any
1: information at that point, right? When you're looking at very, very small time step. Yeah, like the computational power it takes would be massive. <laughs> You essentially just simulated the universe itself. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that that's the uh, reason behind the three-body pendulum as well, three-joint three pendulum. It's just you can't really perform any numerical calculation that can give you any yeah. kind of deterministic output. Yeah, the motion of one body
1: is depending on... The other two. two other bodies, which mm. also depending on each other. Yeah, exactly. So
0: it's way too much complexity in the algorithm to actually simulate.
1: Yes, yeah, so although... Uh, what but this new research is sh- trying to show is that although um, we have these simulations which show that things going ballistic, <laughs> <laughs> <But> those are <laughs> simulations, though. So you can they're not completely accurate, as we mentioned. It's, it's due to a problem with the time step and system evolving. Yep. So now they've shown a mathematical proof that things will go ballistic.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> they went a step ahead. <laughs> they went a step ahead. <laughs>
1: Now, as with all mathematical proofs, they are crazily long. Now, this one is only 150 pages. Oh, okay.
0: That's not much. It's not much at all. Not
1: much. (laughs) Not much at all. Compared to having 400 pages (laughs) (laughs) to (laughs) show (laughs) 2
0: Oh, my goodness. I'll never forget those. (laughs) Stupid proofs.
1: (laughs) 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 Uh. Anyways, um... The late, in the late 19th century, Henry Poincare found that even in a model with just three bodies, it's impossible to compute exact solutions to Newton's equations.
0: Yeah, uh, the, b- the Poincare conjunction was made by him, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, a
1: brilliant mathematician. Weird guy, though. <laughs> <laughs> As with all most mathematicians. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then in 1964, the mathematician called Vladimir Arnold wrote a four-page paper that conjured that most dynamical systems should exhibit instability. In this case of the solar system, this might mean that the orbital shapes or eccentricities of certain planets could potentially shift over billions of years. Hmm. While mathematicians and physicists eventually made a lot of progress on proving that instability r- arises in general, yeah, right. they struggle to show it for celestial bar- models. Hmm. That's because the gravitational effect of the Sun is so overwhelmingly strong that so many features of the planetary model persist even when you consider the additional forces exerted by the planets. Now numerical simulations offer hope that the hunt for such proof was not in vain. Um, there were preliminary proofs that back in 2016 they proved that instability in a simple celestial mechanics model consisting of a sun, a planet, and a comet, where the comet was assumed to have no mass and therefore no gravitational effect on the planet. Hmm. And they proved that, which is oh, okay. a preliminary proof. And this new paper tackled a true n body problem, showing that instability arises in a planetary system where three small bodies revolve around a much larger sun. And they show that it is... in. Inst- um, Unstable. Wow. So this had been expected. It was widely believed that stability and instability coexist in this kind of model. Mm. So The mathematicians were the first to prove it. Yeah. The mathematicians (laughs) they just spend their life proving what's obvious. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness! It's been years doing that. Goodness, yeah. What a traumatic life.
1: So our favorite topic of race, researchers can't digest. <laughs>
0: is is uh, pulling the legs of mathematicians. <laughs> <laughs> or basically insulting them, no offense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, These I- results have to provide a potential explanation for why the planets in our solar system have orbits that all lie nearly in the same plane. Oh, interesting! It shows that something as a simple as a large angle of inclination can be a source of great instability. If you start with a situation where the mutual inclinations are quite big, then you will destroy the system quite quickly. Wow, so it will, will not last billions of years. <laughs> <laughs> we just get destroyed
0: <laughs> instantly. It's it's um interesting, but like because we did mention that we don't really know whether we are going to deviate. From our current orbit i mean eventually you'd expect that you would right as a uh, as the sun keeps passing through its stages at some point we are going to get deviated from our natural orbit so are these particular uh, models that have been derived from the simulations are they actually likelihoods that can actually occur like likelihood events that can occur
1: or are um, they just kind of the car <laughs> research <laughs> is only for three bodies around the sun, which is very different from our own solar system. We have so many different comets and asteroids and planets. Yeah. Right. All still all exotic. So far away from what we have here. Yeah. They'll probably need another ten thousand pages for that. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, we'll wait probably a hundred years for that paper to come out. <laughs> 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 for that proof to come out, yeah.
1: Oh, my well, goodness! yeah, this is uh, a first step towards yeah. a model to prove that our own solar system <clears> is unstable. Wow, hopefully they can do that before our own solar system actually
0: dies <laughs> then then I think that's the best kind of proof that you can obtain <laughs> you know like when they when they exactly try to prove it, the solar system ends they're like, we were going to be right <laughs> fifty thousand pages later <laughs> It's a race
1: between them and <laughs> <fun>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness.
1: A bit more of a practical side. Yeah. Um, so these kind of um, proofs they can be potentially useful for designing efficient trajectories for artificial satellites, mm. or for figuring out how to move particles at high speeds through a particle accelerator.
0: Wow, that's that's
1: very useful indeed. Yeah, it's not yeah. just pen San and paper. Find it, Yeah, Sam
0: would find it pretty interesting, I guess, um, with their potential application of it. Hmm. Okay. But these models, I guess, they're constantly being improved, right, as we speak. Um, naturally, these models, as in any model, you are going to have uncertainties uh, in your model and errors propagating through your model. So did they mention anything about their, um, say, their uh, um, error in what they've
1: predicted or... And what they've simulated, they must have, like, a percentage, right? Um, it's like a mathematical topics. proof.
0: Oh, well, the mathematical <laughs> proof kind of establishes, okay, this is true. But in terms of the simulation the regarding what happens, because you said 1% of the time they can just flick off. Like, yeah. how statistically probable is that? Like, 1% of the time it can happen, but... That's based on rough t- number
1: because they did okay. thousands of simulations, and 1% of the time they flew off.
0: Right, okay. Yeah. yeah, that sets a... Idea one percent of a thousand is like what 10 times or 100 times 100 possible
1: variations, right? 10
0: 10 yeah, I was right. Okay, good at the first time 10
1: 10 possible. Okay, that's not much, that's very much. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's cool. it for this topic.
0: Wow, it's a very long topic. How <laughs> to <laughs> <laughs> quick a slight <laughs>
1: spill on mathematicians again, yeah. I love
0: think. that. <laughs> <laughs> well. We are actually running short on time, so I'll actually get into the next topic and I'll kind of zoom through it. It's not a very big topic, but it's a very interesting topic. It's about AI transformation of medicine. So why doctors are not actually prepared to handle AI transforming medicine. Ooh. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. Artificial intelligence technology actually has been very successful right, in improving uh, the physician's interpretation of certain diseases and um, certain health risks. It's very good at risk prediction, uh, but to be honest, you need a unique set of skills to be able to diagnose somebody. You can't just rely on these tools. Yeah. Right? Now, as artificial intelligence systems like ChatGPT are finding their way into every single industry, even they're going to be incorporated eventually into clinical practice as well, right? Hmm. It's not a far-fetched thinking. But if they are incorporated into such um, physicians' offices you need to make sure that the clinical practices and clinicians themselves know how to utilize this tool wisely because these tools are eventually going to help them make important decisions on diagnosis and treatment of common medical conditions. Uh, These tools are generally known as clinical decision support algorithms. Now, as ChatGPT and these advanced AI are going to get into the picture, it's easy to kind of think of whatever the output of these systems are as objective truths But they're not necessarily going
1: to be objective truths. Yeah, they might not be correct. Exactly.
0: So it's about teaching them how to use such technology wisely so that they don't give misinformation to the patients or they don't misdiagnose patients. Yeah. So this is, yeah, that's the um, effective idea of this particular research conducted by University of Maryland uh, School of Medicine. Uh, It was in England. And they basically wanted to explore this particular idea behind AI and medicine and how it's improving over time and how we need to definitely teach clinicians to use this technology. Right. So Wisely. Well, what do they do? So they actually were just kind of, this particular paper was just about prescri- uh, prescribing like ways that you can improve the um, usage of such tools. So these new technologies naturally have the potential to significantly impact patient care, right? If they're actually involved in patient care, you need to make sure that they're accurate enough to be used in patient care. But unfortunately, tools like NLPs, like ChatGPT, you can't really identify whether it's doing the right research or not. It's not really doing research. It's just kind of going through a body of text and then giving you a statistically high probable information pathway. So it's like, okay, this information has come up in this website, which has been Viewed hundred times, so this must be accurate, and it just presents you that information. It doesn't really do any peer review. It doesn't. It doesn't have any of those kind of ways of validating whether that information is right or wrong, mm. right? If you even tried using ChatGPT and you add in a bunch of inputs, you can actually get different responses for the different times you add that question in. The same question can get three different types of responses. Yeah, of course. So that itself shows you how accurate, say, a quote unquote, these technologies are.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, ultimately, one would use them such that it speeds up our processes.
0: Exactly, but behind. not replaces
1: yeah. them.
0: So that's what they're trying to do. Now, already, clinicians have these kind of technologies, as we said, CDS systems, um, where they're using them to diagnose uh, diseases and ailments, right? But these tools are, they generally know how to use these tools for now, like the ones that they have. They just have like a, a, a heuristic model currently in their computers where they, remember, if you go to the doctor and you get a prescription, they, they quickly go, do a quick search and then they find what medicine is used for what particular disease, and they identify a bunch of diseases based on your symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. It just gives them a list of options, but then they choose which one to diagnose you with based on your symptoms and et cetera. But soon enough, these kind of technology are going to take that entire decision-making process on their own hands, and they're going to say, okay, this is possibly the decision. Right? Now, in order to actually make sure that they don't jump into conclusions which are wrong, you'll need to teach them a certain level of interpreting such technology which is what they have presented in this research. So the first thing that they suggest is improving the probabilistic skills of medi- uh, clinical professionals. Now, in medical school, and they say you cover math, you don't really cover math. So they don't really understand too much of these concepts. So they believe that students should learn the fundamental aspects of probability, uncertainty, and use of visualization techniques. Usually, if you present a graph to someone, they're going to think, whoa, that's true. Wow, okay, this particular thing is increasing. They don't really question the graph, do they? Most people don't question graphs, no. You're not taught to question graphs. So that's what they think. They should actually be taught to understand probability and understand that visualization techniques help you show certain data, but those data itself have errors and you have to understand that to actually make better decisions. If you're just believing a graph, uh, you're really making a poor decision there. You need to understand what's behind the graph, what they've used behind it, what are the errors behind it, actually to make a good valid choice, right? Valid decision. Definitely. So that's something that they want to improve. Incorporating algorithmic output into decision making. So physicians should be taught to critically evaluate and use the CDS uh, predictions in their clinical decision making rather than just relying on them. So they need to do critical analysis. They need to actually rely on their medical training (laughs) rather than some AI (laughs) algorithm training. You know? So they need to understand the context in which these algorithms operate, recognizing their limitations, understanding and considering relevant patient factors that the algorithms may have missed. These kind of things need to be taught in schools to actually enable them to be better professionals. Right. So they are trying to
1: upgrade the current curriculum. Exactly. The teaching standards. Because
0: if doctors aren't taught in these areas, they're going to make bad decisions because they're going to rely on technology too much. Yeah. We know technology is not perfect it is prone to errors. Um, there was a very famous uh, COVID case where uh, they used this particular natu- like um, AI model to predict whether someone has COVID or not. And it was basically checking x-rays and then showing whether these people have COVID or not. Now, it was very accurate in producing results. But when someone opened the hood and then decoded what it's doing in the background, all it was doing was checking the dates. It wasn't even looking at the x-ray. It was just looking at the date and then matching it with cases which occurred in those dates <laughs> and then linking them together so naturally it was accurate because people who must have gotten in that day must have come to get a checkup so most people who ever went to the x-ray on that day would have had covid because they wanted to check themselves out but it was completely comparing the wrong information so it was not really providing good information at all oh. but you see like people were relying on that system they think it was accurate they were like oh wow look at this 98 percent accuracy brilliant but it was not even doing the right thing so when you trust these kind of, um, these AI systems, you need to know really what's happening in the background. You need to be very critical about it. And that's what we need to teach doctors. The last thing that they wanted to teach was practice interpreting CDS predictions and applied in applied learning. So medical physicians should engage in practice-based learning by applying these algorithms to individual patients and examining how different inputs can affect their predictions. Just like how we go and put the same question in three times and then see how it changes and we're like, okay, what is the common factor between them? As engineers, yeah. we understand those Physicists, we understand this, but we need to teach that to doctors as well to make better conclusions so these are some of the um, things that the this university has suggested to actually better enable doctors to perform better so that we don't get misdiagnosed and end up getting killed because <laughs> because some doctor decided to use an AI algorithm instead of actually using his medical skills you know <laughs> so we've got to teach them to use this technology properly, and this goes beyond just medicine I think it's in every profession it's soon enough going it's, it's being used in everywhere, right yeah. Um, a lot of jobs are using them. People are using ChatGPT to write policies as well. It's kind of scary, actually. So you've got to really understand the limitations of these tools and use to, to, in order to use them wisely, right? You've got to understand how to use a tool to use it properly, right? Of course. So that's the same thing. It's it's Even in medicine, even in any other profession, it's about understanding that these algorithms, like ChatGPT and everything, have limitations and that we could use them as tools, but we've got to know how far we can trust them and how to best use them to make good decisions.
1: Do you think one day that these chat GPTs, these AI tools will be able to completely replace uh, medical practitioners?
0: It's distant. Um, The thing is, no matter what algorithms you take, sometimes it requires a very specific niche, experience-based decision-making that AI just isn't ready for. Probably in the future, if you can make artificial intelligence as intelligent as humans, then you could probably get away with it. But I really think that it's very far away. Really far? Really far away. Um, because we currently don't even have a great understanding of our own brains. So yeah, to yeah. emulate that kind of intelligence in an in a artificial sense, you know, currently we're just using probability. It's the not really fancy at all. right
1: now it actually feels really close because you might get it correct 70-80% of the time.
0: So yeah, but that's yeah. You might get it correct seventy eight percent of the time, but then again, it's about questions about what it's doing underneath the hood. Yeah. All it's doing is just probability based things. It's not really doing what we are doing. We are we we use our intuition. We use a lot of different sensory and other tools in our kit to actually make decisions and things. We use emotions as well. Robots don't really have any of that, so they're just mathematic tools at this point. They're yeah, not
1: really to get over that. Then the work is much more difficult. Exactly.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of uh, our topics for the show. <laughs> Hopefully it was interesting. I uh, hope you all found that interesting. So do you want to run through a quick recap? A one-minute recap of the topics? Uh,
1: yes, of course. Right. So, so you start. Starting from last week, we had the LK99 superconductor at room temperature, which has been found out that it's not completely bad. It's not <laughs> working. It's a bad conductor it's a resistor. It's an anti-conductor. <laughs> it's an anti-conductor. And that's that. We don't need to worry <laughs> about <it> anymore.
0: <laughs> and uh, so then after that, we covered a topic on a robot team on lunar uh, exploration. So an ETH Zurich team of engineers worked on collaborating three different uh, robots, two of which were legged, and the other robot could be anything, aerial, wheeled, or whatever. And they ensured that this kind of collaboration between robots enabled them to optimize their Uh, their mission parameters so they were able to go and get the samples accurately and predict them uh, and get all the data that they want but also prevent uh, single point errors as a single point area of failures by actually having three tools doing the same measurement themselves but in different levels of quality so thereby you can always get one source of data even if one system fails this way they were able to perform a better operation and get more data the systems.
1: Yep. Our third topic, our favorite mathematicians wrote a 150-page <laughs> <laughs> proof showing that there's an ultimate instability in a solar system-like model, that not the actual solar system. It's a system of three planets orbiting a sun, each exerting gravitational pull on each other. Yeah. And this creates a pathway forward to trying to prove whether there's an instability in our own very own solar system. And they try to do that before the sun eats up the solar system itself.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's some crazy stuff there. And for the last topic, uh, basically about how AI can transform medicine and doctors. why doctors should be prepared. Uh, this is a general note for everybody. Please be aware of ChatGPT and tools like that. They are all just tools which rely on statistics and probability. It's important to understand their background and what they're doing in the underneath the hood and understand that these are statistical tools which are designed to aid in giving you information but not objective truths. They're not really 100% correct all the time. So even doctors and us, we should understand, uh, improve our probabilistic skills and understand what data is being provided, uh, understand and analyze and evaluate the data that's given from these systems, and also understand interpreting them and kind of utilizing them as tools rather than systems to believe in. And that's it. Hope you all enjoyed it. We will see you back next week or Jim and Mitch will see you back next week.
1: Yep. Ooh. and Catch you next time. Well, we'll catch you next time. Stay curious. <laughs> Bye.